Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. I understood very young that when mum's not well, it didn't mean anything to do with physical health. She self-harmed all of my childhood as well, so I started copying that. But it was me and mum against the world, and I think we acted more like friends and sisters as opposed to mother-daughter. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. Growing up, I never really knew what codependency was. But as an adult, I still didn't know what codependency was. I only truly understood the word, the behaviour, when I started my own journey towards healing and realised that I was, in fact, completely and utterly codependent. The realisation came when I was about 18 months into recovery. I met a man on a dating app and we started spending a lot of time together. In typical Abby fashion, I did not hold back and threw myself and all my emotions headfirst into the relationship. As it turned out, it wasn't a relationship at all. And he soon decided that feelings and commitment were not his style and invited me to exit his life and crawl back into the hole from whence I came. This almost destroyed me. I had survived alcohol addiction, drug abuse, suicide attempts, all manners of scrapes and sticky situations. Yet here I was, sober, and about to be taken out by a man I'd met on the internet. I'd seen so many people in my life go through breakups. Some would take them badly, yet most were able to accept the setback, look inwards for strength, and carry on with their lives. So why, when this rando who I'd known for five minutes broke up with me, did I feel like my life had shattered into a million pieces? I realised then that I had been sacrificing my own needs in order to meet the desires of my romantic partners for so long that I had been left with no sense of self-worth or identity. I couldn't just move on with my life because I had invested all my emotional well-being into this person. I didn't know who I was and I didn't know how to make myself happy. I'm still working on this quirky little trait of mine, but I'm pleased to say that I'm now in a healthy relationship where there is no imbalance of power, with someone who does actually care that I exist. This week's storyteller has a completely different experience of codependency, where an overly close and boundaryless relationship led to her identity becoming entwined with that of her own mother. Here's Jess Francis. So I was born with no fingers on my hand, uh, but I always say this is my saving grace because as hard as it is, it gives me such a perspective. Medically, it's listed down as a congenital deformity. I was born this way. No disrespect to anybody that has accrued disabilities in their life because my hat goes out them every time. Um, but because I was born this way, for somebody to label me deformed, I find hysterical because I am perfectly formed as I was meant to be it's just the doctors that want to cut me up and that's something I've kind of taken with me I guess I was also born up to two parents that were in a psychiatric unit just to start me off great in life I guess they met in a place called Free and Barnet which used to be a very big psychiatric unit in North London um, and then they went on to a 
sort of secondary one after that. I think dad stayed there. Mum was always in psych wards. She had bipolar, so she was very suicidal a lot of the time and then was in day centres or psych units, inpatients, outpatients for her entire life. She was completely institutionalised into that. And that, yeah, that was a journey for me. I think I was like the daughter of that, so I just had to adapt with it. Do you know much about your father? Only what was told to me from my mum. I got told various stories, um, but obviously this is going in between mum's psychosis and manic and stuff, so I believed a lot as gospel and then found out a lot later on. She told me he came to visit, he saw my hand, took one look at my disability and said that I couldn't be his and off he went kind of thing. And that was the story that she gave me. So obviously I hated him. And it wasn't until I found letters that gave a slightly different story. I could hear his vulnerability and struggles in the letters that he wrote. It's very much, he was clearly an alcoholic. I think he was more, to be honest, an addiction. His Letters were very much like, I'm coming to see you. Then the next letter will be, oh, I got drunk. And then I felt shit for a couple of days. And, you know, you can hear that alcoholic pattern, shall we say. So I can see why perhaps at a certain point that story came out from her and was the one that she ran with. And I think there was a a point where I kind of fished and was like, let's find dad. And she was kind of like, well, realistically, and I think like things were put in the way. She told me he had different names. And to be honest, when I did find his letters, there is, there is, sorry, different names, different addresses where you kind of go, it's clearly the same person. There's clearly a, how should we say, a a reluctancy to get into any kind of commitment, even in a relationship, let alone with a kid. So yeah, it made me, I guess, think, maybe I don't need to kind of investigate that one. So yeah, I never really knew him. Being the next generation of very institutionalised people, mental health was rife for me from day dot. I understood very young that when mum's not well, it didn't mean anything to do with physical health. She had her sad days. She self-harmed all of my childhood as well, so I started copying that very young, probably about 10, 11, when I could start really seeing it, I guess. And I guess that's the time when you're just, just ahead of puberty, but you're starting to kind of take stock of the world. I also knew how to get help when she sort of made an attempt. So she'd lock herself in the bathroom. At one point, we had one of those really kind of ornate old Victorian um, systems up and she tried to hang herself off of it. I knew who to call. I had the crisis team's number. I knew how to patch up her wrists, knew what to say. The only problem is that obviously I'd call everyone, do all the right things, then they'd get there and see me and see how old I am and have to put me in foster care. I remember the whole hiding under the table, being dragged out, all of that, been through all of that. I had some amazing foster families that were really supportive, but unfortunately with somebody's mum that goes in ad hoc, there wasn't always space for me. I was very often left sitting in like social service waiting rooms and stuff, had all of that kind of stuff. So it was a real disconnect when mum was in psych. But it was me and mum against the world. And I think we acted more like friends and sisters as opposed to mother-daughter, which is where lots of problems came after that. And I ended up being her next of kin very young in my teens. So I also then copied her. Um, I guess my first real plunge into mental health was at 13 when I took my first overdose. A week after she did hers, she then did one a week after mine so she could be in the ward with me. And she was very much, that was her platform to bond. 
So that was when she kind of was like, hey, I can tell you everything. I can tell you all the side effects. And, you know, I think as a teenager, I thought I was living the girl interrupted life, you know, and that that was me. That was mum. Do you know what I mean? I was Winona Ryder. She was Angelina Jolie. That was how we'd run around psych wards and let each other out. I'd take fags and booms into places for them. It was just, that was my life. And I think... By the time I did my overdose, I was already, I could, I guess I'd been given the example that that's how you get help, to be honest, and that you wouldn't get help any other way. So I remember doing my overdose. It was on my SATs exam. I'd seen my mum do it the week before and I lined up everything and expected to just go down like a sack of bricks on the way to school. I didn't, I walked all the way to school. I sat for a SATs exam. I remember hallucinating through it. I remember being picked up in the toilets afterwards. I then remember being made to walk through the car park to the ambulance because they didn't actually know exactly what was going on with me. Back and forth to foster care, children's homes meant I never had stability. There was always issues with me if I was self-harming, foster care wouldn't take me. And at 16, I did the right mum, see ya, I need a break. And I cut her off for a good six, nine months, which was probably the first time I'd ever done that in my life. I got put into a random crappy little hostel in Kentish Town that didn't exactly provide me the support that I needed, but it did force me to become independent. Like I remember spending two hours trying to open a tin opener. Don't get me started on tin openers, but I can get through them now. So it was one of those life events where you spend, I think I spent three hours and every time I got pissed off, I'd throw the tin around the room kind of thing. People coming in going, yes, I'll open it. Maybe like, no, this is my fight and I need to do this myself. But those things, those battles are what gave me my confidence and independence. Even to be able to say no to mum for the first time gave me that opportunity to start learning how to be me. Perhaps still dependent on other things. I definitely, I was still escaping from the reality because as much as you cut people off, you don't forget about them. They're still there. So I still used very much drugs and alcohol all the way through my teens. I think I always struggled with where my place was with her and in that dynamic. Separated from the chaotic relationship with her mother, Jess branched off on her own. She found herself in the hospitality industry, working in a pub and finding a community there. She relished the opportunity to talk to customers. The bar top was her stage, and she was able to be open and honest with the people she interacted with in ways that she never could with her mum. So going into hospitality, I got paid to be drunk and to entertain other people who, obviously, when you're a barmaid, when you're slinging, I acted like Mighty Mouse to kind of make up for my disability and one of those, oh, look how strong and feminine I am kind of thing. And it helps. But at the same time, after 10 years, I realised that it was very centred around addiction, alcohol, A-class. People that I was dating weren't the best of people. They were the people that facilitated that lifestyle. And I noticed the, how should I say, as much as you get the peaks that you see in hospitality with people and alcohol, you see the depths. You see people destroying themselves. And I think watching my mum's deterioration and people in my family... It, yeah, wrong. It got to a point where I would just realise that it just wasn't for me. That lined up with mum then getting terminal cancer. So I had to then step back in and become her physical carer. Because of her mental health, I was never allowed to live with her directly, but I had to be on close hand, kind of nearby. So 
going back to be a kind of physical carer to somebody that you just didn't want to be with, I guess, mentally. And we'd have all the arguments with her going, well, I didn't mean to get cancer. And I go, well, I never mean to be born to a crazy lady kind of thing. We'd have this, I guess, angst. But by the end, to be honest, her, her terminal cancer really changed i guess her path because it justified a lot of the depression a lot of the manic episodes it really rather than spending two decades of her talking to professionals trying to figure out why she was crazy when she had terminal cancer no one questioned anything because obviously there was a reason for it getting to the end of her terminal cancer i was in a bad place i was with people that were heavily addicted we was all looking for escapism i think at that point but then i lost friends the relationship, the flat that I was in. Then I lost her, so my mum, and then I lost my childhood home because me and mum had the same name. It was very hard to kind of prove who we were and that became a fight just to kind of prove who's still alive. It was really brutal. That recovery from that, I think, was the first time that I really dedicated myself to my own recovery. And as sort of hard as it sounds, I don't think I could do that with mum around because she was my overarching and because she was the priority, all of her mental health came first, then her physical health. So I don't think as much as I dabbled, gosh, I dabbled every year. I've been on every kind of prescription you can name, every, yeah, CBT, DBT, all of them, done it, been there, done that. It wasn't until after she passed that I felt like I could really find myself. Part of me wanted to get that ticket to Australia and never come back ever again. But I decided to stay. Um, I got moved into a flat round the corner from my mum's house. I have to walk past her house, my old school, the hospital that she died in on a regular daily basis. My triggers, I don't see triggers in the kind of stereotypical sense. I see them as reminders of awful stuff that we've been through and stuff that is still hurting us. So that's just there where we need to kind of do the work. So... I took that to heart, started doing the real counselling, the bereavement counselling, really threw myself into that. Cut myself off all meds, but I also triple fractured my wrist, which is the first bone that I've ever broken in my life when I did that in recovery of my mum. So scary as hell where you're kind of learning how to be yourself and then out of nowhere you break your arm in a park that you've walked in every day of your life. But I think it was the universe kind of making me sit down and going, look, this is your opportunity to find you. And I guess as a younger person, I was probably scared of doing a lot of things because I have the responsibility of my mum, my life, all that kind of stuff. When she passed, everything seemed to go that way. And I had to really learn, I guess, how to recover. Threw myself into wellness and meditation. Like I found a meditation guru. I do think for the first year, I was just napping through it. Um, when you come out of survival mode, I think that there's a real exhaustion that hits you and... I had to be compassionate with myself to kind of go, look, whether it's a 20 minute nap or whether you're thinking about stuff, you're still switching off. So stop trying to go for this like high end monk level of where you think you're supposed to be when realistically it's your first year doing this, like give yourself a break. That changed everything. Um, it really made me kind of dig deep because even though I had the new flat, I still had to find myself. And I think when you've lost everything, that's uh, it's terrifying. I felt like I was six years old for the first time out in the world on my own. No mum to call, not really any family in that respect either. So, And I lost a lot of my friends. I think I cut them off purposefully, to be honest, when you kind of do that clean slate thing. And I'm still learning. 
how to kind of structure relationships, how to work on friendships and stuff, because it's a whole new me. During the pandemic, I was agoraphobic. I didn't particularly want to go out, to be honest. So I don't know whether it was agoraphobia or, or just not wanting to be in the world at that point, somewhere in between. Volunteering really helped because it gave me a chance to, I guess, share my story in a boundary way to empower others. But also in a nice mini Zoom call that only lasts an hour, so I don't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to get out of my pajamas. That really helped because it kind of eased me my sort of self back into it. Once you kind of can get to the point where you can help others, helps you find yourself. It really does. Everybody that I know that does volunteering, charity work, anything like that, it can help you tap into the gift that you have within you that other people will find so inspiring and just be that moment for them to find their way so I got told that I could do that as an actual job and obviously me being me always been the kind of lower end of poverty so I got jobs from like signs in windows and people passing word of mouth kind of things I never looked at like guardian jobs and have a love me really kind of thing it just it was something that I never considered so when I found out I could do peer support as a job, I was bowled over. Like, wow, I can get paid just to support people that I've done all my life in an unboundaried, no end to it kind of sense. So, yeah, I felt like I was made for it. So I took on the NHS in one of those. Hi, I'm Jess. I have a disability, depression, anxiety. Been there. Life completed it, mate. Give me people and I can support them because... I've seen the deficits, I've been in the institutions, I've supported the people that have fallen out with the crisis team, say for example, and there's no other service. I run the gauntlet of what service you're going to be eligible for, depending on what you're diagnosed with or what meds you're on, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I know the effect that it has. I also know the academic side of why they place it like that as well. So I, I almost played devil's, devil's advocate my whole life. So... Yeah, I was so excited to come into the NHS, just like, hey, I can't believe it. I felt like a lunatic in running the asylum where you're like, we're here. And I wish I could tell my mum, like, look where Jess is today. Literally walking into the core team, the same core team that 20 years ago oversaw both me and my mum. Same crisis team, same hospitals where I was walking past psych units and inpatients. Like, that's usually my inch. And here I am now with a lanyard, completely not, in, in the professionals. And it's been so empowering. I cannot recommend stuff like that anymore to people that have gone through serious lived experience stuff. We all know the NHS, its purpose and its motivation is so pure and so good for what it can do to us. It's just that the resources don't stretch. And so many of us have fallen through the gaps in that respect. So I pride myself on being just a cheerleader for people. Like I'm not a clinician. I argue with clinicians all the time because this whole stereotypical professional, you need to be in a suit wearing brogues and like 80 and look like Freud. I love breaking down the boundaries. I love being in the business meetings when they put this basis on if they hand out medication, that everything's going to be okay. So it's me, the lived experience one, that goes, just hold up. As, as, as amazing as search line is, have we not got anything else to offer this person? And being able to fight that, being able to even turn around and go, realistically, you guys are all talking about this medication, but have any of you been on it? And even just the base, so a lot of my clients, they have disengaged from a lot of services. They've received poor treatment, some have received discrimination, all sorts of stuff. To be able to jump in almost like as a cheerleader and go, my only job really 
is to reconnect you with yourself. To be able to be in a job where I can actually support those people, where I can harass the GPs in the morning. These admin things that go out to people in the mental health system that I know firsthand destroy you on a bad day. To be able to fill the gap, to bridge that gap, to be able to kind of have that voice. It's been so empowering. I've learned now, I will always have potentially the propensity to be very anxious and very depressed. But if I can go that far in that direction, I also have the capability to go that far in that direction. Just means that I need to be aware of where I'm at with things. If I'm feeling miserable, I need to put on a Disney film. I need to cry it out, walk it out, talk it out. I need some smiley faces and turkey dinosaurs. And that's okay. I need to reheal my inner child. That is hurting because... There's been stuff that has hurt me. There's been a lot that has gone on. And I think unless you're accountable for that and how it affects you, you can't really heal. Healing is messy. It means that there's going to be guilt. There's going to be shame. There's going to be accountability. Once we face it, and I think my journey really screams, I have no choice but to face it. Even if I'm feeling great, I look to my right, oh, crumbs, there's the hospital. The overarching demon hospital of my life. And now I'm walking in it to meet patients. Like... The horrific psych reviews that I had, I now go into psych reviews with my clients. I think because I lost everything, absolutely everything, had to start with a whole new me from the ground up because I really learned how to, I had to learn how to let go because otherwise I would have, I don't know if I'd have made it out of my mum's house to get to my recovery. And now I do a lot of forgiveness and gratitude work because that dynamic was a punishing one when I was a kid. And I think it took a long time for me to recover from that because it was a survival moment throughout all of that time. But at the same time, me and her bonded so well. So I loved her dearly for it. And the things that I learned from her, as much as many ways you can say scarred me on the other way you can say completely opened up my eyes and my horizons to what I could see and what I could kind of I guess appreciate in people she became in many ways my example how not to live as hard as that sounds so as much as I know that some of the things have caused damage definitely I now try not to use the negative connotations to a lot of things because I think if we demonize our parents if we demonize our behavior about our parents all we're doing is adding more guilt and shame to get over and to let go of. Those damaging things are the things that have made me and have taught me how to be in life. So I think realistically, we have to learn how to be accountable for those. See, acknowledge the damage, but also acknowledge what we learn and what we gained and where it's brought us from that. Once you learn how to let go and really accept gratitude and being in the moment, what presenteeism and that kind of thing, really just showing up for yourself. It took all of that for me to learn that, but now I have. It's a moment of pride to be able to say, look, this is, it's doable. It's not pretty and it's not going to be a quick route in that respect. But I love being able to be at a point where I can go into work in the NHS, in a core mental health team, which is still bonkers to me to this day, where I can challenge the clinicians, where I can support the peers and the clients that come in to see me. Just with a sense of it's okay, it's okay to be whoever you are and foster and fester that that hope and that optimism. I do have one last question to ask you, and that is, what does recovery mean to you? Recovery means to me healing and loving myself. 
doing daily gratitude, accountability, wellness, and really prioritizing myself, my needs, with honesty, without shame, with no kind of fear from the outside world. You've been listening to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery From Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.